0: Um, Dr. Brené Brown is a psychologist and a research professor at the University of Houston in their grad school of social work. She's written many books. She's uh, got some amazing TED Talks out there. Um, I would really recommend that if you're interested in the idea of Uh, kind of the internal life and how that's treated, how can we treat it better, how can we understand our inner life better. She's a a great resource for that. Now, she has a book called Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience. Um, In that, she talks about five years of survey data that she and her team collected starting in about 2006. This is uh, 7,000 different people that they surveyed during um, courses that they taught. And they asked the participants to list all of the emotions that they could recognize and name as they were experiencing them. Now, the average number that the respondents to the survey could actually list and name was three, three emotions. Those three emotions were happy, sad, and angry, just three, which makes me think there had to be people people that could only list like one, right? I mean, some people can definitely, a lot of you I'm sure list 10 more types of emotions that you experience. And so um, the the main premise that this leads into for her book, and kind of like the main point that she makes, is that language is our portal to connection, learning, and self-awareness. And uh, in in keeping with a quote by uh, an early 20th century Austrian-British philosopher named Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, um, it says, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And so her premise is we need to understand and be able to express and verbalize our emotions better in order to be more in touch with what's going on in us. It kind of makes sense. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about hope. Hope is a common word. We've seen that in the three verses that we read, the three passages we read today. It's a word we use a lot, it's all over the Bible. But for different people and for each of us at different times, it can have vastly different meanings and encompass different experiences. Um, Now, understanding this word impacts um, how we live out our Christian calling, so it's important to think about this and to, uh, to work through it. It also impacts how we describe to others the implications of our faith in a world that's full of suffering, loss, hope, and despair. So not to give some kind of exhaustive list of how hope can kind of be used, both in the Bible and in our common uh, experience, but just to give a few, to give a sense of just how broad this concept is. So sense number one might be hope as like anticipation, excitement, expectation. I was thinking about when 2020 turned into 2021, and everybody thought that COVID was basically on the way out. And everyone's like, oh, you know, get out of here, 2020. You're the worst. Maybe using more colorful language than that a lot. And 2021's gonna be better, and all this kind of stuff. There, sure, there was like a cynicism that was being expressed there because it was a really hard time in 2020 for a lot of people. But there was also this expectation and this hope, this like very forward-leaning, very positive type of sense that was being expressed with that hope. And the other way that this kind of sense can be expressed is with sports teams or politics. You know, you hope that your team is going to win. You hope that your candidate or your party is going to um, get on top, that type of thing. There's an expectation and an excitement there. Now, the other end of the spectrum, you have hope that's like full of pain and it's full of waiting. It's, it's characterized by desperation and like just barely hanging on. Hope can look like that too. An example might be if you have or ever, have ever had a, a, a seriously sick or injured child, right? You're hoping and probably confident that God is going to heal them, but at the same time, there's a sense of fear and dread that's kind of in the middle of all of that. It's like a really low feeling. It's, it's, a, it's a being a bound up type of hope, a kind of a, a, a tight and compressed type of hope. Um, you might uh, have a relative with an addiction and experience this type of thing, hope that something changes, but there's also fear in there and, and the reality of, uh, of life as it actually is. And I think also the daily expre- uh, experience of the oppressed, people who are being trafficked, who people who are under the thumb of authoritarian governments, people in situations of war and destruction, things like that, that's a painful hope. And then you also have hope in kind of a more just sort of run-of-the-mill surface way. You've got wishing people the best, expressing empathy, being nice. You know, something like another coworker just tested positive for COVID. I can't even tell you how much in the last week or two that's happened. And the first question is, well, are you okay? How bad is it? And they're like, well, I'm pretty much fine. And you say, well, I hope you get better soon. You know, that type of expressing hope. Um, If a friend has a missing pet, I hope you find your pet, right? That's a a hope. It's real. It's not false, but it's also a little bit more surface level. Or maybe someone has an upcoming trip or a, a test or a date, something like that. You wish for them that it goes well. So hope kind of spans across this like massive area for us to try to understand what we're talking about, again, both in our lived experience, how we say hope, how we do hope, and then also how the Bible talks about it. Now, even in the aftermath of something we're hoping for, if it ever actually resolves, because we all know there are things that we hope for that don't ever really actually resolve, or it takes years and years and years, and, and it's hard to see how it resolves, but even if it does... But that can involve some very different emotions. So if there's a positive outcome, you know, the thing we were hoping for, it actually happens, we might have elation. There might be disbelief. You know, that's, that's kind of a, a natural reaction, like, oh, I can't believe that whatever happened. Um, a disconnection sometimes can happen, or a sense of apathy, like, I, I, this happened, I've been wanting this for so long, what do I even do now? It's not a negative thing, but it's a reality of, like, sometimes it takes a little bit for us to catch up to what we've been hoping for when it actually happens. And then there could also be if you have a negative outcome. Obviously, the thing you're hoping for doesn't happen. What does that look like? There can be sadness, obviously, despair, shame, apathy also, but more in the sense of, well, uh, what did it ever really matter anyway? We can convince ourselves that what we were hoping for and feeling potentially very strongly for a long time Well, I guess it didn't really matter anyway, right? We can convince ourselves out of uh, the the reality or out of the power of that hope. Now, in trying to sort through all of this and what we're going to talk about a little bit today, we need to consider this humbly, because in the Bible, hope really matters. In the Old Testament, there was hope for posterity or hope for a promised land, hope for deliverance, hope for a Messiah, and in the New Testament. Same types of hopes, but hope for redemption, maybe restoration. It's kind of flavored a little differently. Hope for eternal home, hope for freedom from sin and death. All of these things are like everywhere in the Bible. If you look for it, you will see whether it's named as hope or not. You're going to see it all over the place. We're also commanded to hope. In Romans 12, 12, it says rejoice in hope. And in Hebrews ten twenty three, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, the hard thing about those commands is hope is a feeling, isn't it? How can we be commanded to have a feeling? That seems challenging to me. Um, but it, you know, even if that kind of makes it feel impossible, I think we can also remember that it's a mindset too. And so we need God's grace in the midst of this mystery where we have our weakness and Christ's strength, our inability and his ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even when it comes to my emotions, amazingly enough. Now, in, 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 in like I think in a very real way, that humility has to acknowledge the problem of pain and suffering, and so that problem is uh, that God is good. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim that He's conquered death. We proclaim that He, uh, you know, has a plan. And yet, there is devastating pain and suffering in this world, and the world looks at that. And that's evidence that this whole thing about God is a total crock, right? How could Christians say that God is in control and that he's good, and yet all of this awful stuff is always happening, right? Everything that you hear in the news every day. So we have to approach this with humility. Why should anyone have hope? And that reality, that reality of pain and suffering, should obliterate in us any temptation to simplicity or flippancy or cliche when we're approaching the, uh, like the longing and the hope and the lament that we see around us and that we may um, be given the opportunity to like step into with somebody else in our lives. So in, t- in going through today's passages, you know, this, this will be inadequate, I promise. Like this is not going to be some comprehensive treatment of hope and how we live it out. Um, there's a massive breadth to this, and I acknowledge this now. But I'd like you to be looking in these passages and what we discuss for aspects of what we need to understand in order to understand biblical hope. So a few things. If you want to take a note of it, you can kind of be looking for this. We're not going to go point by point, but you'll see this kind of sprinkled throughout. You've got the need for hope. I've already talked about this. Suffering, injustice, pain, brokenness. The response to hope. We respond with lament, with longing. At times with faith and expectation and the object of hope, Jesus, his mercy, the comfort that he offers us and gives us, restoration, and the promise of his eternal presence. So let's get right now into uh, Lamentations. We're going to go through uh, each one of these individually. And just, again, hope is a really broad topic. It's not going to fit into neat categories. But stay with me here today. So in Lamentations, we see that hope doesn't mean much. If something isn't wrong right now, in verses 19 and 20, they don't start in a vacuum, right? The wormwood and the gall, this incessant experience of bitterness that the author is presenting, it's the norm as far as he's concerned. The whole book, that's all it is. That's all Lamentations is, except for this tiny little section that we're reading in here. So don't think that every chapter in Lamentations is like, here's the bad stuff and here's the good answer. It doesn't really work like that. This is the only part in the whole book where you see that. Now, um, all the books, all five books of Lamentations are all acrostics, which means that they have 22 verses, one each for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it goes one verse each letter. But in chapter 3, there are 66 verses. So you get a triplicate effect there. You get three verses for each letter, and then it goes... It goes down the Hebrew alphabet. And so, in a sense, uh, chapter 3 is kind of giving a heavier emphasis by doing that, right? Like, it's not, it's not. I mean, it's the middle of the book, right? And it gives a heavier emphasis to the point of the book. And that's really what we're looking for. Um, like I said, verses 21 to 26 are really the only bright spots in the midst of anything in here. Um, but what's amazing is that that little glimmer of hope does not displace or end lament. It's not really presented as the answer. It is the answer, right? It is the way that we can look to God for how he answers our despair and answers our pain, but it doesn't mean that that pain or the reason for the lament goes away. It's instead what the the Jesuit uh, priest, Daniel Berrigan, calls a rare and tentative smile. Sometimes in lament, we have that. We have a rare and tentative smile. And I think we need that too. And it's something that we can help each other remember. Even if it's not answering the pain, even if it's not trying to change it, we can smile knowing that God is faithful. It acknowledges that sorrow is real and weighty, but it is not the final word. That's what we're acknowledging. That this, this pain, this sorrow, what we're lamenting is real. There's no changing that, except it's not the end. And God will change that in the end. Now, many times in the Bible, hope focuses on eternal hope, okay? So a lot of, particularly in the New Testament, you see a lot talking about our hope in Christ's return, our hope in his future kingdom, our hope in the redemption and recreation of all things. But in this section, it focuses a lot more on God's characteristics. So in verse 22, you see his steadfast love and his unending and continually renewed mercies. I loved that, uh, you know, they are new every morning. His, his mercies never end, and yet they renew. So there's something new that's happening there every day if we look for the way that God's mercy works in our lives. In verse 23, we see his great faithfulness. In 24, it's a, a, a kind of a presentation of provision and inheritance, that portion re- we receive from God. Um, and in verse 25, we see that God is responsive to us. He does hear us. Hope is not just for the future, but it's also for now. But the object of that hope is on God himself. These characteristics, those things about God that it teaches us, those things about him that we hope in, that's, that's what the object of hope is, not in some kind of gain that we receive or some kind of good that God might bring to us. There's nothing wrong with those things. But what we're hoping in is God himself and for us in the new, in the new uh, uh, covenant of grace, the hope in Jesus Christ. So waiting is part of both the the process and the practice of hoping in God, and you see this uh, in Lamentations three. So it's not just waiting. This is toward the end that I'm talking about here. Not just waiting, but waiting quietly, even. So there's a present and an ongoing quietness, not giving up, but not getting frantic either. Um, And it's uh, it kind of begs this question: um, When can we be quiet? How is that possible? I think it's when we know that we've been heard. And we know that in our lament, in our prayers, we know that we are heard by God. That is a promise he gives us. And so knowing that we've been heard, even if the thing that we're praying about doesn't change, it can give us the ability to be quiet before God and continue to hope in him. Now, uh, lastly, in verse 21, we see this mindset of hope that I talked about, you know, the emotion of hope, but the mindset of hope as well. It says, but this I call to mind and therefore, dot, dot, dot. So there's will and intention that's represented here, but you need to read carefully that this is not a strident or an egotistical will. This is not uh, uh kind of like, convincing myself that I'm better than all of this suffering. This is not convincing myself that, well, we will overcome this and th- this pain won't be here anymore because we've worked against it or we have fought it down or whatever that might be. Again, Father Berrigan says the imagery, particularly focusing a little bit before where we started in verses 16 to 18 or, or representing all that lament in the rest of the book of, uh, rest of, the book of Lamentations, it says the, this imagery couldn't conjure up anything besides submission. There's all of this picture of the man down on his face, ground into the dirt. So contrast that with popular images that we have today in our culture of the hero who may be bloodied, but stands with his fists clenched, ready to fight. I got this image in my mind of uh, in, in uh, the uh, Endgame movie for Avengers, right? You've got Captain America after he's just like had the snot beat out of him by Thanos, his Shield is half broken and he's all messed up and all this kind of stuff. And he, like, you know, does one of these like stands up and then he tightens the thing on his shield, and you know, he says Avengers assemble, and then they go and they beat Thanos. It's that that kind of thing. That's the popular message of what hope is, right? Like, my hope is in myself. My hope is then that I can stand up again, that I can keep fighting. But that's not what the Bible calls hope. That's not what we're called to hope in. That's not what we're called to strive for. We are not the fighters for Christ in our own strength. So our hope is not making us into or convincing ourselves that we're superheroes. That's not what it is. The Christian life is waiting in the tension of our continual position of weakness while believing fully that Jesus has fully and utterly overcome the world. Like it tells us in John 16, Jesus says, I have overcome, take heart. So that's the position that we're called to take as Christians. Weak, but strong because of Jesus. So I'm going to ask a few questions in each one of these sections. This is just an open-ended personal application type of thing to think about what we've just talked about um, before. So the first one is, are you willing to sufficiently acknowledge the pain that you experience in waiting and hoping to take it to God and lament. Can you acknowledge that? Sometimes I think we act like we can't acknowledge that pain, especially as Christians. Like we have to kind of be better than all of that. But how do we take it to God and lament if we won't acknowledge that? So uh, are you willing to do that? And then secondly, how can you practice submission to God in the process of lamenting, hoping, and waiting? How do you submit to God in that? So moving on now to Psalm 119, this presents a question, what risk is there in hope? You'd think we're talking about hope in God, right? The eternal creator high above all, his, uh, the train of his robe fills the temple, that kind of God, right? How could there be any risk in hoping in him? Well, um, Psalm 119 is called a Psalm of the Torah. So the author loves God's word and the law, right? That's kind of what 119, the longest psalm um, you may know, uh, it talks all about the author's love of God's law. The starting point in this book and the starting point for the verses that we read today is the conviction that uh, uh, not only uh, is God's word true, but it's also good and it's beautiful. In verse 113, he says, I love your law. In In 114, I hope in your word. And the author was talking about the Torah, right? That's what it means. In your word. For him, he's talking about God's law. Um, In 115, he tells evildoers to leave so that he can continue to obey God's law. It's not get away from me, evildoers, so that I'll have some peace. It's that so that I can continue to obey God's law. Um, There is a strange note in the middle, though. And this is what we're going to mainly talk about today. Um, In verse 116, it says there's a risk of shame in that supposedly rock solid hope. What? What does that even mean? It says, let me not be put to shame in my hope. It's really interesting. So, what shame could there be? Have any of you heard of Pascal's Wager? Yeah, Joanna certainly has. I know a lot of you probably have. It's a philosophical argument that says the risk of believing in God and living as though he exists is much lower than the risk of living as though he did not. So you compare a finite loss, like if I live uh, as a Christian ought to live, yeah, there are things that I'm not doing, You know, all of these you know moral type of things that I'm making the choice not to do. But that's just a finite loss, right? If I, if, if I end up being wrong, and I didn't do those things, oh well, it's just a finite thing. Whereas if I live as if God exists, and he's real, and I base my life on that, I have the prospects of infinite gain. So that's, that's basically the argument in the 18th century that Pascal made. It was a cost-benefit analysis from the 18th century, is really what it was. I first heard this in high school, even though I had no idea that, what, that that's what it was. I was in a, a summer camp, and the, you know, the speaker presented that kind of challenge, but he didn't say, As Pascal presented, you know, he just kind of made it uh, sound like it was his idea. I was like, wow, what an interesting idea. (laughs) Um, But uh, here's the thing. Um, There are various responses to it, you know, various ways that either the Christian community, atheist community, whatever it is, they might respond to that type of argument. But here's the reality. If my hope ends up being misplaced, I'm a chump. I lived my whole life for a lie. Now, again, there are various ways that you can respond to it. I'm not saying it's a bad argument, but internally... I think that's what it would feel like for me. If I lived my life in a way uh, that ended up being totally misled, I'm gonna feel like a chump. Um, And moreover, it's not just me who's wrong, but it kind of means that there's an entire worldview that would have effectively led the whole world astray for centuries. And so this is one of the reasons why that particular argument, at least today, in the non-Christian world, and I'll say particularly in the atheist world, that argument is not particularly convincing. Because it's like, well, yeah, that may be finite loss, but that's some pretty serious finite loss. Um, Now, uh, I, I think even in the Bible, it reflects that sentiment about it. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are most to be pitied. So, yeah, if we're to be pitied, that's shame right there, right? So this shame, when he says, don't let me be put to shame in my hope, I think that's a real like, honest risk, right? I don't want to be put to shame because I'm hoping, and God, please let this not be stupid, what I'm hoping in. So just for a little bit of real talk here, isn't this a background fear that we experience as Christians in a lot of ways? I don't know if, if this is something that um, you deal with in your own heart and your life, but here are just some, um, some things that came to mind pretty readily for me. Um, I'm following God but I've never seen someone become a believer, let alone been able to lead them to Christ. So I'm kind of asking this question, am I a chump? I stayed pure while dating, but my marriage still fell apart. I'm not saying all of these are true of me. That's obviously not true. I'm just saying these are the things that come to mind readily. I raised my kids to follow Jesus, but now they're atheists. God makes anyone in Christ a new creation, but good pastors keep abusing and having affairs. How is that possible? God is love, but kids are suffering, being abused, being shot, dying here, and all over the world. So how can we have hope in Jesus? These are all super hard questions. And they're the questions that the world, broken and twisted by sin, is asking. You know, maybe you're asking these questions too. The world is definitely asking these questions. So please don't fool yourself, Christian, that the right, the right response, quote unquote, Um, that that those right responses diminish the dreadfulness of what we and others are experiencing. Sometimes even a doctrinal or reformed or Western mindset can make us think that a true and hopeful response can and should reduce the original cause for needing hope in the first place, i.e., if you have the right kind of response or the right doctrine, maybe you don't have to lament as much anymore. But the work of the Holy Spirit, he's our comforter, right? It, that alone is what ultimately repairs, restores, and uplifts. We're called to cry out to God, to continue to hope in him, look to him, wait for him, seek him. Now, why do we have to continue doing that? Well, because it still hurts, because we still don't have answers, because those things are still happening, because we're still in the now and not the, the not yet, right? Right? Now we must continue to do all of those things also alongside those who are suffering. It's a form of following Christ's humility to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as it talks about in Romans 12, 15. And so you, Christian, do not have to bring the fix. Yes, we bring the message of Jesus. We bring the gospel. We bring the hope that we have in the now and in the future. But that's not the fix. God is the fix. He's going to bring the fix to the hearts of the people who seek him. And that's what he promises us. Now, there's a community in our country who have, I think, particularly lived out this picture of the Christian life as one where we have to wait for the consummation of hope in God. Like, wait and wait and wait. Black Americans waited for almost 100 years after U.S. independence to be freed from the evil of slavery. And then they waited another 100 years for full recognition and protection of their civil rights. So over those 200 years, how many of them pled with God to let their hope not be turned into shame? Imagine that, 100 years in slavery. How much of that brought a fear that hoping and trusting in God would just lead to shame? And even today, how often do ongoing examples of oppression make someone think, I'm a chump for holding on to hope. I think this is an impression that many or most or all of us in this room probably don't relate to, probably don't understand in a personal way. But the reality is we live that every day in different ways, and we should relate to it because we can ask the same questions about different things. We experience it differently. I'm not trying to equate things here. But but I think we need to remember that if we can relate at all to this struggle to continue to hope in God when there's not that consummation or there's kind of a back and forth type of consummation, if we can relate to that at all, I think we can relate to the struggle that black Americans have experienced, continue to in many other groups in our country. Now, today is Juneteenth, Jubilee Day, also called Emancipation Day. It has a bunch of different names. It marks the day, I didn't know any of this, by the way, so for any of you who don't know, um, I had to kind of educate myself here in the last couple of weeks. Um, it marks the day in 1865 when the freedom of President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was announced to slaves in Galveston, Texas. Now that was essentially the farthest west outpost in the south and the, the, that event represents the day that the last slaves heard the news that they weren't slaves anymore. So it, it's celebrated by black Americans locally and in the states uh, ever since 1866 the very next year, and now it's the newest federal holiday since last year. And uh, it was funny last year. I didn't have a whole lot of time to contemplate this because I think they told us not to come into work the next day at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon the day before. And so, so it was a funny thing like, wait, what is, what is this thing? Why am I not coming to work today? I had meetings. Like, what is going on? And so this is, you know, the second year, but it's almost like the first time because it was, uh, it was a little sudden before. Now, um just like Juneteenth itself doesn't cleanly mark the end of slavery in the US. I mean, the 13th Amendment wasn't even passed until, or wasn't ratified until six months later. Uh, neither uh, the, the Emancipation Proclamation or the Civil Rights Act in 1964, nor the Voting Rights Act in 1965, they didn't cleanly mark the end of racism, discrimination, and bigotry in our country either. Now, if we have, as Christians have experienced the truth of hope deferred makes the heart sick, as it talks about in Proverbs 13:12, in the myriad ways that we've already talked about today, we must certainly stand in weeping and rejoicing with our black brothers and sisters who have waited and hoped and waited across generations in this specific way of their struggle for freedom and equality in the US. So I say today for like the first time, happy Juneteenth. I'm excited to know something about it and I'm glad it's a holiday. And so I wish you happy Juneteenth today. Now, a couple of questions about this whole section in Psalm 119. Where in your faith do you fear being put to shame? For you. And how can we better operate as the body of Christ in continuing to wait and hope and wait with the suffering and with the, the oppressed? How can we do that better as the body of Christ? Well, last section in Ephesians 4. Here we're called to hope. I want to acknowledge that uh, I, I owe a lot of this material to Pastor Ryan Kelly at Desert Springs Church from a sermon back in 2013 of all uh, all times um, from 1 Peter. So great material there. I encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Um, but we're called as believers to a hope grounded in promises that cannot fail. We are able to hope because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see that in uh, the beginning of Ephesians, in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Now, that sealing with the Holy Spirit is both experiential, it's a memory, i.e., something we can call to memory. It's a historical thing. It actually happened to us. That sealing of the Holy Spirit is proof to us that our hope is not in vain, and it's also spiritual, because the Holy Spirit does a miraculous work in our hearts. And so, through that miraculous work, we're able to continue to hope. Um, now, just as a side note here, there's Trinitarian language all through this section in Ephesians 4. So just look at that. It's amazing. You, you really, uh, you know, it doesn't say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all in a row, but you really just see the, 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 the fleshing out and the description of how God relates to us and calls us to relate to him as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, um, back to the passage, we remind ourselves and each other of the things in, in verse 5 in order to maintain our hope. So, first one is one Lord. Who is the object of and the fulfiller of our hope? That's Jesus. So, one Lord, one faith. What and unto what did we believe? We have to remind ourselves and each other of that. And one baptism. This sacrament is both a mile marker and an evidence for our hope. So we look at our baptisms. We, you, you see this when we baptize children in this church, is we say, we will remind these kids as they grow older. We will remind them if they're tempted to turn away. We'll remind them that they were baptized. And we can do that for each other too. Even if we weren't there for it, we can ask each other, what was your baptism like? When did you get baptized? And when there's times of doubt, times of, uh, of, of fear, times of um, like kind of clinging on to hope, we can remind each other of our baptisms, just like we remind each other of Jesus and our faith. And then in verse 6, this section ends with the Father's attributes toward us. So on Father's Day, it's also rem- a reminder of how fathers are, are ordained to operate in their children's lives. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, you've got three things, overall, through all, and in all, God the Father is being spoken of with all of those. So overall is a, a positional description. It's his authority. It's also his responsibility. The Father has responsibility over the household. God the Father has responsibility over his people. Through all is kind of an active presence. I really had to, to, to dig, kind of dig into this one because I didn't understand how would God the Father be through us. Well, imagine that motion of through, active presence, nurturing, inspiring purpose, even work. So fathers, think about how that plays out in your, uh, your interaction with your own kids. You're not just having positional authority. You're not just uh, emphasizing rules and responsibility. You're also nurturing, and you're teaching them to have purpose in life, and you're helping them to know how to work well. And lastly, in all. God is in all. He's indwelling. There's an abiding There's a heart connection right there. There's an unconditionally holding on to us aspect of it. And so fathers, how can you do that in your son's lives or your daughter's lives, in the lives of the children that God has put in your path to show them that you are abiding with them and you're unconditionally holding on to them? Now, I don't want to neglect to return to the holiness of lament for those who hope for fatherhood and yet don't experience it. We're going to bring it full circle here. Those longing for marriage and the opportunity to raise children but don't have it. Those longing for children but can't conceive. Those who grieve the death of children and who wait to meet them in heaven when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I weep with you. I wait with you. I hope with you. In our hope in Christ Jesus, we will not be put to shame. So all of you, I just want to remind you of that. So, last questions today. When was the last time you encouraged yourself or another in the twin promises of God's character now, today, and his eternal promises for later? And then for fathers, a question for you. How is God, your father, doing a holy work in you to bless and sanctify your children or the children that he's placed in your life? In conclusion, we see in 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. Um, uh, Paul is speaking of all of the things that will pass away. And it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And the implication there is that faith and hope both pass away, at least in the way that we experience them here on this earth, and only love remains. Hope is a core element of our Christian identity and walk. But even so, even with it being that core thing, it's a temporary thing. Whether uh, we are hoping for something, wanting something to happen, or we're hoping against something, that something bad doesn't happen. Whether it's an uplifting hope, something that brings us into anticipation and excitement, or something that has a desperate and tenacious sense to it. Uh, just barely holding on by by the skin of your teeth? When we see Jesus, we won't hope anymore. And the reason is that we will know fully and be known fully, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Pray with me now. God, our Father, thank you for being the rock of our hope. Thank you for giving us Jesus and the Holy Spirit so that today we can have hope We can have hope for the sanctification, the work that you're working in us every single day, both in us individually, in us corporately, in our community, and in this world, Lord God. And maybe most importantly, God, we can hope for a time where all of these these elements of sin and death that we experience every day, the degradation of it, the brokenness of it, the despair of it, when all of those things are swept away in the majesty and the righteousness and the rule of King Jesus. I pray now that you would give us all hope, hope that would overflow, hope that would um, extend to those in our lives, hope that might encourage God, hope that acknowledges that it's hard as we wait on you, as we wait on you, God, as we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.